0: to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, January 27th. I'm Brecken from Drake University. Here's our first story. We start with, why do people live here? Cost of living and small town feel are county's most appealing attributes, respondents say. By David Golbitz. Inflation and the rising cost of living are the top two concerns among pottawatomie county residents according to a new survey commissioned by the council bluffs area chamber of commerce and the iowa chamber alliance that's no surprise said juke camp chamber president and ceo we've seen that on the federal level as well we get that from a lot of different places for the last two years the iowa chamber alliance which is made up of the 15 largest chambers of commerce in the state has commissioned a survey of residents ages 18 to 65 to attempt to determine what it is about Iowa that people like. Why do people live here? For 2023, each chamber was also given an opportunity to narrow the scope of the survey to its own locality to see what their specific communities think are the most pressing issues. We fortunately were able to get that for Pottawatomie County, and I think it speaks very similarly to the statewide data, Camp said. But it's really important to kind of be able to dig into some of these specifics within our county, especially because we have some different attributes than other parts of the state. More than 70% of the 1,212 residents polled were born in Iowa, and about the same percentage of respondents listed Pottawatomie County's outdoor recreation opportunities as important to living here. Whether it's Lake Manawa, obviously the river, the hills, those hills, What a lot of people don't realize is, the only other place those are in is in Germany and China. So we have a super rare opportunity, Camp said. We're seeing huge success right now at Mount Crescent. They're blowing it out of the water. While the cost of living is a concern for some, nearly 30% of the respondents listed it as the state's most appealing attribute, while 20% like the small town feel. That's something. If you want to talk to the folks at Iowa West Foundation and their imagination hours, They heard the same thing, Camp said. So when I saw that come up come through here too, I was like, it's really resonating. And speaking with people. This hometown feel is a real thing here in Council Bluffs, Pottawatomie County. That's not to say there isn't room for improvement. A little more than one third of respondents, about 36.5%, did rank inflation and the rising cost of living as their main concerns. In descending order, the highest, the next highest ranked issues are improving public education, with 13.8%, lowering taxes for individuals, 11.5%, and improving quality of life, 10.7%. What we're really focused on this year is looking at talent and looking at property tax, Camp said. As we saw in the results, folks polled the highest on if you were talking specifically about tax, they had the most negative impacts in statements on property tax, saying that they thought it was too high. More than 65% of respondents indicated that property taxes are too high, but that tax revenue funds a lot of the county's services, like road maintenance and EMS, and the police and fire departments. Currently, Pottawatomie County's property tax is 1.39%, which is one of the highest in the state, but also the county has a low assessed value rate. When you have the low assessed values of about $120,000, is our median housing value, that draws your ability to levy tax down. Camp said. So obviously you have to levy a higher level of tax because just as the mayor does a good job of saying, what services do you want to give up? Camp also pointed out that a large portion of property tax revenue also goes to public education, which nearly 70 percent of respondents ranked highly in terms of quality. Pottawatomie County also has a lot of job training opportunities, Camp said pointing to the Council Bluffs Community School District's Plus One program and the certificates available at Iowa Western Community College, like a CDL, a commercial driver's license, and CNA, to become a certified nurse aide. Diversity is another thing the Chamber is addressing. Through advocating for more immigration and work visas, the Chamber also received a grant from Google to create a series of videos about diversity in the workplace, which Camp sees as vitally important to the county's growth. Diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, is something that we have very much taken on, Camp said. We took it on within our workforce development apparatus, and one of the things we found out is, the biggest thing with that is, you have to meet people where they're at. DEI education can be alienating to some people, Camp said. There's a fear for some people because they don't understand it, and they don't want to seem ignorant or not educated, Camp said. With the videos, people can watch them at their own pace, in their own home, and then take what they've learned back to their workplace. You just get more and more people educated on it, asking questions and saying, how can we do this better? Because it's a big deal, Camp said. You talk to anyone at the Centro Latino. You talk to someone at the Lutheran Family Services, with some of the refugees and others. It's important. It's, and it's important not only as a humanitarian issue, but these folks that are coming as refugees, immigrants, have huge impacts on the economy as well. For additional information about the Iowa Chamber Alliance 2023 talent poll, visit iowachamberalliance.com policy priorities backslash annual dash talent dash poll 2023 results. The next article we have is titled Make It Happen Underway. Community Foundation of Western Iowa Kicks Off Training for Nonprofits by Tim Johnson. The Community Foundation for Western Iowa launched an 18 month training program Thursday to help nonprofit organizations build their capacity by developing their endowments. The program called Make It Happen includes six monthly meetings followed by quarterly continuing to make it happen sessions where participants learn from subject matter experts based on their personal feedback and needs. The training program not only ensures long term viability and strength of our region's nonprofit organizations through fund development, but also strives to create a widespread culture of philanthropy throughout the Community Foundation's Western Iowa service area, a description from the Foundation said. The Foundation used a competitive application process to select nine local nonprofits for the program, which is sponsored by DA Davidson, an investment management firm that manages some of the Foundation's funds. Participating organizations include Avenue Scholars Southwest Iowa, Charles E. Lakin Human Services Campus, Habitat for Humanity of Council Bluffs, Historical Society of Pottawatomie County, Learning for All, Lewis Central Education Foundation, New Visions Homeless Services, Southwest Iowa Families Incorporated, and Wings of Hope. In the opening session, Donna Dostel, the foundation's president and CEO, told participants they need to start communications with donors by telling them, because of you, the organization's clients were able to eat, find shelter, find a job, or whatever it is the organization helps their clients do. If you talk about the impact of donor dollars, people will want to then support your organization, she said. We're trying to reframe the way we think about how we communicate with our donors, she said. Dostel also asked attendees to think about how events their organizations hold that make things happen are received by the community. How are they driving impact in the community, she asked. At fundraisers, a spokesperson should tell attendees, because you were here or because you donated, certain services were provided to clients, Dostal said. Randy Waller, CEO of New Visions Homeless Services, said that by asking for sponsorships, New Visions was able to turn its Christmas celebration previously a substantial expense, into a fundraiser. In addition, they they asked volunteers to work at the event so they could see the impact it had. This is a great way to get them into our facility, she said. The organization has seen a 20% increase in donors during the past few months, Waller said. John Nania, Executive Director of Learning for All, agreed that impact is what donors are interested in. They don't donate because they like me. They don't donate because they like the organization. They donate because their dollars make a difference, he said. Dostal said organizations should connect, support, and impact in their communications with donors and potential donors. She suggested they emphasize that they are driving a kind of impact in the community. Fundraising and communications need to be aligned, she said. Charities face a culture in which they feel like they're not supposed to make a profit, Dostel said. The only thing they teach us to do is, if we do make a profit, show how it's going back to the mission, she said. I challenge each one of you to stop thinking of yourselves as nonprofit. Everything you do is having an impact on our community. That's the introduction to changing the mindset. This is creating an impact, instead of coming from a place of scarcity. Dostal told attendees to build relationships with people or, and organizations and think about how the relationships can be mutually beneficial. She added that having community members talk to their organization can make a big difference. She asked how organizations make each volunteer feel special. If someone volunteers for you, they're more likely to donate, Dostal said. Again, 76% of volunteers turn into donors, probably long-term donors. John Hoyt, vice president of the Lakin Foundation, suggested those, peop- those seeking donations try asking people they've never asked before. Like the millionaire next door. It makes them feel important, he said. Dostel asked if the organizations represented at the session keep track of the hours their volunteers put in. She encouraged them to do that. Funders love it, said Kim Smith, Family Services and Volunteer Coordinator at Habitat for Humanity of Council Bluffs. Hoyk said it sometimes helps when approaching a potential donor to stroke their ego. Donors, even if they're anonymous... They take pride in knowing they were a part of it, he said. The 2023 cohort is the second to have taken the training from the foundation, Dostal said during the lunch break. A group of eight organizations went through the series in 2020. The foundation will probably offer the training again in 2025, she said. We feel it's a part of our mission to create that culture of philanthropy and help the nonprofits in the community, she said. There also are two pictures associated with this article. The first one shows a group of the nonprofit organization leaders sitting around a table um, speaking with Dostal. And the um, caption is Community Foundation for Western Iowa President and CEO Donna Dostal Center Center um, speaks to local nonprofit heads during the opening session of the foundation's Make It Happen training program on Thursday, January 26th, 2023. Um, Looking at the picture, you can see some of the um, organizers taking notes, and um, they all look pretty happy to be there. There also is a picture of the New Vision's homeless services CEO, Brandy Waller. Um, She's smiling. She's wearing a black shirt with some white stripes. um, And you can tell that she's really engaged with the program, as is everybody else in the background. The next article is Meet Back on the Table for SNAP. Opponents say ID verification and work requirements are too burdensome. By Aaron Murphy. And this is coming from the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau, and it's by Aaron Murphy. With meat purchases now back on the table, the debate at the Iowa Capitol over proposed additional restrictions on the food assistance program known as SNAP turned to more familiar territory eligibility and work requirements. Republican state led lawmakers advanced legislation Thursday that for the SNAP program, a joint operation of the state and federal governments would require an extra layer of identity verification for recipients, require the state to examine records to ensure recipients are still eligible, and require recipients to work at least 20 hours a week, with some exceptions. Technically, the bill also still contains a provision that would limit SNAP users to only foods approved for the WIC program for expectant mothers, which would eliminate meat, fish. Poultry, nuts, and many cooking essentials. But Republicans say they plan to amend it and eliminate only candy and soda, except for zero calorie sodas. Despite that pledge to constrain the food restrictions, the proposal found plenty of detractors at its first legislative hearing at the Capitol. Of the 40 organizations that are formally registered as either supporting or opposing the bill, 37 oppose the proposal. While just three support it, according to state lobbying records. Opponents include food assistance and charity groups like food banks, parochial groups, and healthcare organizations. The three supporters are groups that advocate for limited government and spending and lower taxes. United Way of Iowa advocacy officer Dave Stone said the organization opposes the legislation because of a number of provisions that will create additional barriers for eligible families who need these benefits. Cindy Pedersen, a lobbyist for the Iowa Food Bank Association, called the proposal for new testing of a SNAP recipient's financial worth very burdensome. Pedersen said Iowa Department of Health and Human Services Director Kelly Garcia has done a good job reducing administrative burdens in the department and reducing the error rate in programs like SNAP. She also noted that Pennsylvania in 2015 ditched its asset test for SNAP after a three-year pilot program that saw administrative costs outweigh any reductions in spending. By eliminating the asset test, the state saved $3.5 million annually, state officials said, according to news reports. Many states have moved away from an asset limit because it's an administrative burden, Pedersen said. Proponents of tighter restrictions on food assistance eligibility say the added measures are needed to rein in program costs and ensure the people who are receiving the assistance are the ones who genuinely need it. SNAP is funded by the federal government and jointly administrated by the federal and state governments to individuals and families who meet the income restrictions. Iowa's share of the program administrative cost in the 2020 budget year was $22 million, and its average administrative cost of $27.84 per case per month was 18th lowest among United U.S. states, according to federal data. House Republicans moved the SNAP bill just two days after approving $345 million in new state spending on private school financial aid, a program that has no income restrictions. The intention of this bill is to ensure Iowa's welfare programs are sustainable and remain available for the Iowans who truly need them. These programs provide a necessary safety net for low-income Iowans and the legislature wants to make sure the Iowans receiving assistance from these programs are truly eligible. Re- Representative Tom Janieri, a Republican from Lamar's who ran the hearing, said in his emailed comments on the bill, The bill protects the taxpayer by codifying practices to authenticate identity of applicants and requiring requiring verification information prior to enrollment, Janieri wrote. This bill, importantly, requires Iowa's welfare program eligibility processes to be merged into one single system that will verify all income information of applicants and make sure there is no fraud in the program. Iowa's average monthly SNAP participation of roughly 279,000 in the 2022 budget year was the lowest since 2008, according to federal data. Any legislation that would change Iowa's SNAP program would require federal approval. With the two Republicans on a three-member legislative panel signing off on the bill, House File 3 advanced to the full House Health and Human Services Committee. Our next article is Iowa's Error Could Erase Millions Localities Were Expecting. Mistake Could Lead to Lower Property Taxes, But at a Cost in Public Services. This is by, Tim, by Tom Barton and Isabella Zaluska from the Gazette. A rush is on in the Iowa legislature to fix an oversight resulting from a previously passed property property tax reform package that could mean potentially millions of dollars in lost revenue in the coming months for some Iowa cities. Lawmakers in 2013 passed a property tax cut package that, among other provisions, gradually lowered property taxes on multifamily residential units like apartments, nursing homes, mobile home parks, and manufactured Home communities to where they would be taxed at the same rate as all residential property by 2022. And in 2021, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a law including multi-residential properties in the residential property class beginning in 2022 assessment year for taxes due in fall 2023 and in spring 2024. The bill eliminated multi-residential as a property tax classification. In doing so, however. No corresponding changes were made to the section of Iowa Code that defines the mathematical formula used to calculate the number used to establish the statewide taxable value for each property class subject to taxation by cities, counties, school districts, community college, and other taxing entities. The result? A higher percentage for residential property as a whole, because former multi-residential was included said Julie Roizen with the Iowa's Department of Revenue's Local Government Services Division. She said the department didn't catch the oversight until October when Staff calculated the property tax rollback rate. The rate is set annually by the department and is de- designed to cap the total taxable value for homes and farms from increasing more than 3%. If aggregate property values for homes and farms increase more than 3%, their taxable values are rolled back. So that the total increase statewide is 3 percent with formal multi-residential erroneously included staff calculated a rollback rate of 56.5 percent compared to what should be 54.6 percent while that could be an unexpected relief for taxpayers it could mean local governments have to scramble to find money to support the public services they planned to fix the oversight the governor's office and the department of revenue filed a bill in the Senate that carves out all former multi-residential properties from calculating the property tax rollback rate for 2022 residential property tax assessments. With cities and counties in the throes of setting their budgets to take effect July 1st, the error by the state has thrown the process into disarray and may cause cities, counties, and school boards to either lose millions of dollars they planned on or raise tax rates more than they wanted, and the clock is ticking to make a fix. In order for the state and the county auditor to have the necessary time to administer the levying of property taxes, cities and counties are required to have their budgets approved and certified to the state and county auditor by March 31st. School districts are required to have their budgets set by April 15th. The timing of the bill is frustrating as it changes the rollback percentage at the last minute in the budget process, Marion City Manager Ryan Waller told the Gazette. In its current form, Senate Study Bill 1056 would eliminate more than $437,000 of revenue owed in fiscal year 24 to our community because of our positive growth. Waller and Cedar Rapids Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell who was at the state capitol and met with lawmakers Wednesday, said they hope lawmakers will invite Iowa's mayors to the table to help find a collaborative and sustainable solution. I am extremely hopeful that mayors are a critical part of this conversation, O'Donnell said. As a mayor of the state's second largest city, I am acutely aware of property taxes and the burden it can sometimes place on our citizens. I also know the expectations of our citizens in terms of the services they received, and they frankly deserve. City Manager Gia Fruin told the Iowa City Council this week the community would lose out on $1.7 million in planned revenue under the bill, which effectively sets a lower rollback rate of nearly two percentage points less. A majority of that, $1.2 million, would impact the general fund. At this point, all of the advice that we're getting from the state is to proceed ahead with our hearing schedule, but we have to understand that this legislation's been introduced, Fruin said it may be entertained and passed and if so we will have that 1.7 million dollar deficit essentially out of the gate with this budget fruin said the city has enough reserves more than 5 million to absorb the impact if the council decides to go that route we created that emergency reserve for a scenario just like this fruin said it's just unfortunate that it's before us today at tuesday's city council meeting fruin said he wasn't ready to recommend any budget changes he said city staff will work on an analyzing options of how to overcome the challenges should the legislation pass, Fruin said. As you can imagine, cities across the state are sounding the alarm bells to their delegation, Fruin said. We're hopeful that nothing will happen, and the rate that they advertised last fall to cities so that we could begin the budget process will be honored. Coralville City Administrator Kelly Hayworth said the Iowa League of Cities met with the governor's office this week to talk about the ramifications this would have on cities. The legislation, as proposed, does not amend any deadlines of the budget process. The Coralville City Council this week voted to table setting a public hearing date on setting the total maximum property tax rate until the council's next meeting, February 14th. The bill is scheduled for a subcommittee hearing Monday. It is important for taxpayers and local governments to have clarity regarding the residential and multi-residential assessment rollback, said Senator Dan Dawson, Republican from Council Bluffs, who chairs the Senate Ways and Means Committee. Dawson said the committee will work to evaluate the governor's proposal and continue our work to protect the taxpayer. The bill, if passed, takes effect upon enactment and requires the Department of Revenue within two business days to issue an amended order certifying to the auditor of each county the percentages of actual value at which all property is subject to taxation. My initial take is that that it will be very detrimental to local communities, said Senator Pam Joachim, Democrat from Dubuque, ranking member of the Iowa Senate's Committee on Tax Policy. One county auditor, Joachim said, told her the bill would lead that county to increase its tax rate 29 cents to maintain current tax dollars. If not, county revenue would drop by 1.1 million. And uh, Gage Misciman of the Gazette contributed to this report. Now we have our face of the day. Today's face of the day is Elizabeth Hunter. Um, There's a photo of her listed, it's in black and white, but she's got long brown hair that's been curled and she's smiling in the photograph. um, And it's essentially a headshot and here is the profile written up. Elizabeth Hunter moved back to Southwest Iowa, or what she refers to as the Promised Land, in twenty sixteen, when she landed her position leading the engineering department for Snyder and Associates Associates Council Bluff's office. An Iowa State University graduate who holds bachelor's degrees in both civil engineering and environmental studies, Hunter went on to earn her master's degree in civil engineering and community and regional planning from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. As a member of the Society of Women Engineers since 2000, Hunter has put her talents to work for several Council Bluffs organizations over the years, including Council Bluffs Trees Forever, Friends of the Council Bluffs Public Library, the Iowa Engineering Society, Greenville M. Dodge Chapter Board, and the Council Bluffs Chamber Executives Women's Partnership. She is excited to be joining the Iowa West Foundation Advisory Committee as a newly appointed member. In her spare time, Hunter can be found spending time with her husband of 21 years and their three cats or working in her backyard on an organic raised bed garden. She is a charter member of the Pollinator Alliance of the Heartland Board. And fun fact, she used to be on the solar car team at Iowa State University. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, January 27th on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Brecken from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. We now move on to obituaries. The first obituary for today is for Joe Catherine Cox. Joe Catherine Cox, age 93, of Council Bluffs, passed away January 24, 2023, at Bethany Lutheran Home, surrounded by her five loving children. Joe was born November 14, 1929, in LaSalle, Illinois, to the late Robert and Effie Ray, Jackie, Ryan. She graduated from St. John's High School in Omaha, Nebraska, in 1947, and earned her nursing degree from Mercy Hospital School of Nursing in 1951. Joe married Paul James Cox on September 16, 1950. They were blessed with five children. Joe was a registered nurse for over 50 years, serving as Director of Nursing at Bethany Lutheran Home and Risen Sun Nursing Home, retiring in 2001. She and her husband also owned and operated CC's World Jewelry and Accessories. Jo was a member of Corpus Christi, Queen of the Apostles Catholic Church. In addition to her parents, Jo was preceded in death by her husband, Paul Cox in 2014, infant brother, Charles Ryan, and sisters Ruth Brown and Roberta Johnson. Jo is survived by her children, Paul Cox Jr. of Mariana, Arizona, Jereen Denning of Iowa City, Iowa, Kenneth Cox of Bennington, Nebraska, Cheryl Probst of Fremont, Nebraska, Kevin Cox of Council Bluffs, eight grandchildren, 11 great-grandchildren, many nieces and nephews. Christian Wake Service, Monday, 6 p.m., followed by visitation with the family until 8 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Chapel, Massive Christian Burial, Tuesday, 10 a.m. at Corpus Christi, Queen of the Apostles Catholic Church. A lunch will immediately follow in the parish hall. Interment Memorial Park Cemetery. Memorials are suggested to Corpus Christi Catholic Church or Gabriel's Corner. Timothy R. Northup. Timothy R. Northup, age 59, of Carson, Iowa, passed away January 23, 2023, at Methodist Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska. Tim was born October 5th, 1963 in Corning, Iowa to the late Joseph and Phyllis A. Northup. He grew up on the family farm in Notaway, Iowa and graduated from Villisca, Iowa High School. Tim worked at Jim Hawk Trailer from March, 1998 through December, 2022. He was a very dedicated employee who cared about what he did. Tim was an inspiration to all, and if you needed help, he would be there to assist any way he could. He was a night shift foreman until that shift ended. Tim also sold parts on the night shift while running the shop. He also remained on as a mechanic after the night shift closed, plus painting and taking decals off trailers after hours. Tim will be extremely missed. In addition to his parents, Tim was was preceded in death by his sister-in-law, Kathy Northup, in 2023. Tim is survived by his wife, Jennifer Northup of Carson, three daughters, Skye Hauger of Council Bluffs, Heather Diamond of Oakland, Iowa, Taylor Vincent of Crescent, Iowa, one son, Joey Northup of Olathe, Kansas, 11 grandchildren, brothers, Larry Northup of Notaway, Michael Northup of St. Joseph, Missouri, Richard Northup of Tipton, Iowa, nieces and nephews. Visitation with the family on Sunday, 3 to 5 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Funeral service Monday, 11 a.m. at the funeral home. Interment, Calvary Cemetery, Corning, Iowa. The family will direct memorial contributions. Dennis Hotza. Dennis Hotza, 76, of Carson, Iowa, passed away Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. Survived by children Jennifer Lee of Ames, Iowa, Kate Ayersman of Huxley, Iowa, and Michael Hotz of Carson. Ten grandchildren and brothers, Terry Hotza of Marion, Illinois, Wendell Hotz of Carson, and Gary Ernie Hotz of Carson. Celebration of Life will be held at 4 p.m. on Friday, January 27, 2023, at the Carson Community Center. Visitation will be held two hours prior to the service, beginning at 2 p.m. at the Community Center. In lieu of flowers, a memorial fund has been established. We now have $1 million cap on medical malpractice awards being considered in Iowa by Aaron Murphy of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Cash awards for pain, suffering, and other non-economic complications from medical malpractice lawsuits would be capped at $1 million under legislation being considered by state lawmakers. The proposal has been floating around the Iowa Capitol for multiple years, but this year, Governor Kim Reynolds highlighted the proposal in her annual Condition of the State Address earlier this month. This is the year that we must enact common-sense tort reform To stop the out-of-control verdicts that are driving our OBGYN clinics out of business and medical school graduates out of state, Reynolds said during that address. One hospital administrator said that it's gotten so bad, he's often asked about Iowa's large jury verdicts during recruiting trips. Two years ago, that had never happened. The legal environment is changing, and our laws need to keep up. Iowa is one of 22 states that does not have a cap on non-economic damages and medical malpractice states, according to a 2020 report from New York Law School's Center for Justice and Democracy. Other states' caps on non-economic damages range between $250,000 and roughly $800,000. Of the states that share a border with Iowa, Wisconsin, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Missouri have caps on non-economic damages. And medical malpractice cases while minnesota and illinois do not the proposed legislation in iowa would cap non-economic damages at 1 million dollars but would not cap non-economic damages a legislative hearing on the proposal wednesday at the iowa capitol drew much attention from statehouse lobbyists and advocacy groups speakers representing the medical community said that legislation is needed because without the cap physicians are hesitant to work in iowa and it becomes difficult for hospitals and clinics to recruit and retain doctors. And they said without a cap, the cost of insurance can rise high enough to drive hospitals or clinics to close, especially smaller ones in rural areas. Representatives of the medical community pointed in particular to two judgments from 2022, a $97.4 million award to a family whose newborn suffered permanent brain damage when its head was crushed due to healthcare care providers using improper procedures during delivery, and a $27 million award to a man whose case of bacterial meningitis was misdiagnosed as the flu. Physicians don't want to come into a state where liability is so vital, said Kendra Conlin, a lobbyist for the Iowa Hospital Association. Michaela Brockmeyer, a third-year medical student at Des Moines, Univ- Des Moines University, Said many of her classmates, even those who are Iowa natives, tell her they would like to remain in the state and practice, but plan to leave Iowa upon graduation. Just 22% of undergraduate-level medical school graduates remained in Iowa in 2022, which was the seventh worst rate in the country, according to the most recent annual report from the Association of American Medical Colleges. This is something to retain the physicians of Iowa for years and years to come. Brockmeyer said during the legislative hearing. Those opposed to the legislation largely represented lawyers and advocacy groups. They argued that the state should not put an arbitrary limit on financial rewards to Iowans who are severely injured during medical procedures. The speakers who opposed the bill included Sam Clovis, a former Republican candidate for U.S. Senate, who has filed a lawsuit that claims medical negligence resulted in his becoming paralyzed from the chest down and confined to a wheelchair. And Chip Baltimore, a lawyer, lobbyist, and former Republican state lawmaker who chaired the House's Judiciary Committee. Tom Slater, a lawyer from West Des Moines who specializes in medical malpractice and personal injury, said he views the proposal as further whittling away patients' rights. I've heard a lot of talk in here on the other side about doctors and hospitals and cost of insurance, system cost. What's the talk in favor of the patient? Slater said. The bill puts the finishing touches on not just curtailing patients' rights, but eliminating them. The two Republicans on a three-person legislative panel, Senator Jason Schultz of Schleswig and Michael Bousselot of Ankeny, moved to advance the bill, Senate, Senate Study Bill 1063. And later Wednesday, it passed through the full Senate Judiciary Committee. Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat from Des Moines and a lawyer, declined to sign off on the bill in the subcommittee. We now go to sports starting with Iowa wrestling. Hawkeye's Lee dominates as he learns, by Steve Batterson from the Quad City Times. Spencer Lee continues to do what Spencer Lee does, dominate opponents, but the current season has been an education of sorts for the Iowa wrestler. A three-time NCAA champion who is working toward a goal of becoming the Hawkeyes' first four-time NCAA Titleist, Lee is off to a 10-0 start in his senior season, but returning to competition after undergoing surgery to repair torn anterior circuit limits in both his knees, this has a lesson-filled experience. This has shown me that as a wrestler, you can adapt and change your style, Lee said. He welcomes the chance he has had to learn as he and the second-ranked Hawkeyes prepare for 7.30 p.m. duel at top-ranked Penn State on Friday. The fun part of it has been learning how to re-wrestle, Lee said, There were a lot of things that I couldn't do that I wanted to do, or things that I would do that didn't work. It's been a learning experience. I had to relearn how to do things, and that has been good for me. What's been good for Lee hasn't been so good for his opponents. The 125-pounder was named USA Wrestling as its Athlete of the Week this week, recognizing two falls Lee recorded last weekend for the Hawkeyes. The top-ranked Lee pinned a pair of opponents, then ranked in in the top five. Nebraska's Liam Cronin in 38 seconds, and Wisconsin's Eric Barnett in 4 minutes, 38 seconds. Lee has recorded falls in his last six matches, the longest string of pins he has put together while building an 88-5 career record at Iowa. The last four of those pins have come against top 10 opponents, and his quick pin of Cronin marked lee's 10th career pin in under one minute and his 27th first period fall as he prepares to compete for the final time as a hawkeye in his home state the murray'sville pennsylvania native returns riding a 48 match win streak that ranks as the ninth longest win streak in the history of the iowa program this season lee has collected bonus points in each of his 10 victories including seven pins one technical fall and two major decisions he has outscored his opponents 104-23. to 23. Iowa coach Tom Brands said Lee is demonstrating the type of competitor he is. I don't think Spencer pays attention to anything other than what he does best, and that's a tribute to his approach, Brands says, saying the senior has stepped up in his return to the mat. Still, Lee doesn't take any of it for granted. I get pretty dang nervous for any match, no matter who it is, Lee said. I'm going to be nervous and I'm going to be ready for it like it's the biggest match in the world because it's the next one. And for Iowa, which last defeated a top-ranked team when it defeated Oklahoma State 18-16 at the Grapple on the Gridiron at Connect Stadium on November 14, 2015, the Penn State duel is a big one. A crowd in excess of 16,000 is expected at the Bryce Jordan Center, where 19 ranked wrestlers are listed among potential starters in the 10-weight glasses and there could be as many as four matches re- featuring two top 10 wrestlers. The pairings could include 2nd-ranked Real Woods, 9-0, and 3rd-ranked Bo Bartlett, 14-0, at 141 pounds, ninth ranked Patrick Kennedy, 12-2, and 5th-ranked Alex Facundo, 12-1, at 165, and a 2022 NCAA Championship match rematch at 179, between 7th-ranked Jacob Warner, 11-2, and 2nd-ranked Max Dean, 12-2. The matchup at 285 features 3rd-ranked Tony Cassiope at 16-2 and 2nd-ranked Craig Greg Kirkville at 8-1. Cassiope is 3-0 all-time against Kirkville in collegiate competition, but dropped an 8-5 exhibition decision to the Penn State Junior in November at the National Wrestling Coaches Association All-Star Classic. He'll have to be a little better than he was in November. He's not going to fall into it, Brand said. He'll have to prepare himself, have to win the tough positions, overcome some adversity maybe. Iowa and Penn State are meeting at the nation's top two ranked teams for the fourth time. The top-ranked Hawkeyes won that in that situation in 1986 in 2020, and the Nittany Lions earned a 19-13 win at second-ranked Iowa a year ago. Lee figures the Hawkeyes will earn whatever they get. Rankings don't mean anything in the grand scheme of things. It's just a number of people put to try to hype matches, Lee said. When two people walk out in the middle of the mat, you're zero and zero. There's also a picture associated with this article. It is of Spencer Lee. He's in a starting position wearing his Iowa gear, um, and he looks very determined. And the caption for the picture is three-time, 125-pound NCAA champion Spencer Lee is off to a 10-0 start for Iowa this season and enters Friday's duel at top-ranked Penn State, having won his last six matches by fall. Next, we have boys basketball. Heartland Dismantles Whitting in Lincoln by Peter Burnett. Hartland Christian dismantled Whitling 57-11 with scoring from all over in the Frontier Conference Tournament in Lincoln on Thursday. Brady Dingus led the Eagles with 8 points, and after opening up a dominant 29-4 lead after the first quarter, Hartland was able to cruise and get playing time for most of the roster. Josiah Gray added 7 points, and 7 others scored 6 points each. Dylan Sharp led on the board with 12 rebounds as the Eagles racked up 11 steals. Heartland next plays against number 7 College View for fifth place at Southeast Community College on Saturday at 8.45 p.m. Next, we have Bengals go back to Kansas City for another AFC title tilt by Dave Scretta from the Associated Press. The Kansas City Chiefs have lost three straight games to the Cincinnati Bengals, including last year's AFC title game when they blew an early 21-3 lead in an overtime defeat before a sea of stunned fans inside Arrowhead Stadium. Patrick Mahomes, who expects to lead the Chiefs against the Bengals on a sprained right ankle in Sunday's night's rematch, is likewise winless against Bengals counterpart Joe Burrow, the only quarterback to have beaten him three straight times. In other words, there's a reason the AFC North champions are imbued with a certain degree of confidence as they return to Kansas City, where the burgeoning rivals will once again determine who represents the AFC in the Super Bowl. Your preparation leads to confidence. That's just what you see from Joe and all of our players, explained the even-keeled Bengals coach Zach Taylor, who has somehow out-schemed, out-coached, and gotten his team to out-execute Andy Reid and his Chiefs over the past 13 months. So when they walk on the field on Sunday, they're relaxed. In fact, the Bengals are so confident that some have taken to call the Chiefs' stadium home Burrowhead Stadium, which, as you can imagine, doesn't sit well with the AFC West champs. I'm sure a lot of guys are aware of the comments they're making, Chiefs wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster admitted. The Bengals have always been the rah-rah team, and they back it up, and they're doing so again in the postseason. Yet, it's not as if the Bengals, who roared past the Buffalo Bills in the divisional round, have dominated the Chiefs, who took care of the Jacksonville Jaguars despite losing Mahomes for most of a quarter following his injury. All three of their meetings have been decided by just three points each. We know what team we're playing, a team that has been to this game the last five seasons, and they've all been in that stadium, Burrow said. So to me, they're still the team to beat and we're coming for them. But we know it's going to be tough. We know it's going to be hard fought. And we know the kind of players they have on that side. Their matchup in last year's title game was a classic. Mahomes threw three first-half touchdown passes, then Burrow led a dramatic comeback for Cincinnati. And when the Chiefs' Harrison Butker kicked a 41-yard field goal with no time left to send the game to overtime, the Bengals quickly picked off Mahomes to set up Evan McPherson's winning kick. Listen. They probably should be confident. They've won three games, said Reed, who is trying to guide Kansas City back to the Super Bowl for the third time in four seasons. That's okay. We're still going to play the game. Besides, the Chiefs have a quiet confidence about them too. I would say they know us. We know them. And we're all searching for that little extra that you can throw at them, Reed said. We've played each other enough times that I'm sure both sides feel the same way. Then there's a section, Mahomes on the men, The Chiefs' all-pro quarterback practiced as usual this week, and Mahomes' ailing right ankle did not appear more heavily taped than his left. His ability to scramble is a big part of his game, though particularly when it comes to finding time to make off-schedule throws, and any hesitation could be costly for Kansas City's offense. It's all about being a competitor, Mahomes said this week. You want to be out there, especially in these games. Recharged run game The Bengals often struggled to run the ball this season, but Joe Mixon dominated the Bills last week, despite an offensive line forced to use a trio of backups because of injuries. He finished with 105 yards rushing and a touchdown. That's nothing I'm surprised about, Mixon said. At the same time, it's a great thing to be able to contribute in a major way with my teammates in a crucial moment. So as the moments get bigger, I've just got to keep elevating my game. Speaking of running, whatever the limitations... On Mahomes because of his ankles the Chiefs will almost certainly try to help him out by getting their run game going. Isaiah Pacheco had 95 yards on just 12 carries last week and the bulk of that came during a 12 play 98 yard drive when Mahomes was getting examined and backup Chad Henney was in the game. Quick release. A big part of Burrow's success is getting the ball out quickly before pass rushers can get a lane and defenders can process what's happening. His release time averaged about 22 and a half seconds this this last week, and the Bills sacked him just once. We can't let him sit back in the pocket and get into rhythm throws because that's when he's most dangerous. Chief Safety Justin Reed said, "You're not going to win games if you don't get sacks and turnovers, especially against a team like this." Intriguing matchups. The Bengals have one of the league's best groups of wide receivers, headlined by Jamar Chase who set the franchise's single-game record with 266 yards, receiving in the the regular season win over Kansas City last season. They'll be facing one of the youngest defensive backfields, which often has three rookie corners and a rookie safety on the field at once. Hopefully, we've grown enough that we can match what they put out there, Chiefs defensive coordinator Steve Spinuglo said. This is an elite group we're going against. We have to play an elite game. We have to play our best game of the year. Next, we have Eagles 49ers ride quarterbacks to brink of Super Bowl by Dan Gelston. The late game meltdowns stick in San Francisco. Take the Super Bowl against Kansas City following the 2019 season. The 49ers became the third team in Super Bowl history to cough up a 10-point lead in the second half and lost to the Chiefs. Or last season's NFC title game when a 17-7 lead unraveled because of a dropped interception, a conservative fourth down call, and an interception on the final drive. Winner Rams. Another blown opportunity at the championship that's hard to forget. As you go to back as you go back to last year, we were making a couple plays away from making it to the Super Bowl again, wide receiver Debo Samuel said. What's it really going to take for us to get there? We just have to minimize the mistakes and everybody has to be on their assignments. Near perfection. That's a pretty heady task for the any team, much less one headed into Philadelphia, where the cold, an MVP finalist, and the top-seeded team in the NFC await. It's going to get crazy loud. Or is it crazy and loud at Lincoln Financial Field? The 49ers say they're ready. They have won 12 straight games, including seven in a row since rookie Brock Purdy, a seventh-round draft pick, took over at quarterback after Jimmy Garoppolo was injured. The second-seeded 49ers have been on the brink of adding a sixth Super Bowl for years and their appearance Sunday in the NFC Championship game is their third in four seasons. The Eagles may not have been a present preseason favorite to get here, but a series of bold moves, notably the acquisitions of wide receiver A.J. Brown, linebacker Hassan Reddick, cornerback James Bradbury, and safety C.J. Gardner-Johnson have turned them into a team with a Super Bowl or bust outlook. Want near perfection? The Eagles know something about that in the Pro Bowl, Quarterback Jalen Hurts starts with a 14-1 record in the regular season and last week's playoff victory against the New York Giants. Hurts is playing through, a lingering, through the lingering effects of a sprained right shoulder that cost him two games. He is putting in overtime ahead of his biggest test of the season against the 49ers' number one ranked defense. It's in his DNA to be here at all times, working on his crafts, Eagle coach Nick Sirianni said. Whether that's in the weight room. Whether that's in the training room, whether that's in the film room, this guy is obsessed with getting better. Hertz had some real doubts, d- doubters that said he was a real-deal franchise quarterback headed into training camp. He wiped out any concerns pretty much after the opening week win against Detroit and kept pulling up big numbers and wins to the point where he was an NFL MVP finalist. All that's keeping Hertz from a Super Bowl, the Eagles' second and sixth season, is the last pick of the draft. Maybe it's more than just Purdy's play. He's had a meteoric rise for this season from Mr. Irrelevant to undefeated rookie quarterback in the NFC title game. That helps the 49ers. He has no memory of the Super Bowl collapse. He played no role in the debacle against the Rams. Purdy just knows how to win. He has a natural ability to play the position, and that's why he's fun to coach. Because when he does, th- does make mistakes and do things, he can see it, he can know why, we can see it, and we can all understand it, 49ers coach Kyle Shanahan said. He gives them a chance, one reason the odds makers list the 49ers as the two and a half point underdogs, according to FanDuel Sportsbook. Silent Count Purdy hasn't had much experience playing in a hostile environment during his brief NFL career, with only two road starts. The first one at Notoriously Loud, Seattle, should have provided a good test for what Purdy will face Sunday in Philadelphia. Purdy got experience that week using the silent count, which Shanahan told him at the time would be beneficial in the future. He did say it was good preparation for what we might have to play in terms of the playoffs, going on the road for road games, and obviously Philadelphia, Purdy said. In these kind of games, it's all about communication. How can you operate smoothly, get in and out of the huddle, get the play off the right way, make sure everyone is on the same page. So that's definitely a big emphasis this week. We now have a few entertainment briefs. The first one is Kanye West could be banned from visiting Australia. Kanye West could be banned from entering Australia due to his anti-Semitic comments. The 45-year-old rap star is reportedly planning to travel to Melbourne to meet the family of Bianca Sensori, whom he's rumored to have recently married. But Wes could be barred from entering the country after he praised Nazi leader Adolf Hitler during an interview with conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. Jason Clare, Australia's education minister, told The Today Show, People like that who've applied for visas to get into Australia in the past have been rejected. I expect that if he does apply, he would have to go through the same process and answer the same questions they did. Claire also noted that West appears to be a pretty big fan of a person who killed six million Jewish people. Peter Dutton, the leader of the Liberal Party in Australia, has also suggested that he looked to block West from entering the country. The next one is about Bella Ramsey adjusting to her newfound fame. Bella Ramsey has been startled by her own fame. The 19-year-old actress has recently returned home to England after attending the premiere of The Last of Us in Los Angeles, and she said she's still adjusting to the attention of fans. It's weirder seeing billboards locally than it was in LA, she said. I took my driving test the other day, which I failed, and during that, I kept driving past the billboards, which was quite strange. Ramsey plays the part of Ellie in the HBO drama series, and her family is now forcing themselves to watch the show. It's not the sort of thing that they would normally watch, she told the BBC. My grandma sent a message to my mom the last night saying, it's not easy watching, but it is rather thrilling. That's what they're making of us. The Last of Us is an adaptation of the 2013 video game of the same name. And this comes from Bing Showbiz. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, January 27th. The nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Brecken from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.